0: Hello and welcome to this BICOM podcast. I'm Sam, the Research Associate at BICOM, and our topic today is uh, trying to uncover the recent developments within the Jordanian royal family. Um, fortunately, I'm not alone, but instead I'm delighted to be joined by Dayul Khattab, who is a highly respected Palestinian journalist who is now based in Jordan, Amman. Um, Dayud is the Director General of the Community Media Network, which was established in 2007. It is a non for profit organization dedicated to advancing independent media in the Arab region. Um, and was also formerly a Ferris Professor of Journalism at Princeton University. Um, Dayud, it's great to have you with me. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, and this Samuel. Um, perhaps we can start with you describing, kind of from your own perspective, this, this rather unprecedented um, public dispute within the Jordanian royal family. Do you think it was something just like a normal internal family spat? like you seen any kind of monarchy in the Middle East? Or, or was there something more hidden to it?
1: Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like the Crown series <laughs> that uh, you have in the, the UK. Um, no, it's, um, it is uh, unprecedented in that uh, uh, family members, princes, are not put under house arrest. Uh, in fact, uh, I think in 70 years, the only one that's been put under house arrest was uh, Prince or King Talal, but then that was very short. And, it ended with him moving to Cyprus and so on. Um, so yes, it is unprecedented and it, uh, it uh, shocked a lot of people. Um, although, uh, you know, I think it was portrayed in a much more exaggerated fashion than the reality of just a family feud, albeit a royal family feud, but it's basically a family feud.
0: In the Western media, there was talk of it being a possible coup. Um, but that has kind of since been kind of diluted somewhat. Um, h- how has it been pers- perceived in Jordan within the public? I think um, people
1: were a bit concerned, uh, not so much about themselves, but about that if this type of um, high level uh, conflict uh, in the royal family continues for a long time, it could affect. Uh, Stability, investment, uh, relationships, and so on. So I think people were worried from the governance point of view. Uh, Nothing happened on the ground. Uh, Everybody, you know, we have like a curfew from 7 p.m. to 6 a.m. So Saturday night when the story broke, everybody was home. uh, And the, the next morning, everybody went to work. Uh, nothing really happened in, in, in terms of changing uh, the lifestyle or any kind of physical uh, change that was happening that people can worry about or governmental change or anything like that. So it was uh, not seen as directly affecting people, but the fear was that if it stayed long, it could uh, on the long-term have a detrimental effect. And that's what was worrying to some people.
0: How do you rate the the popularity or perhaps the, the stability of, of the Jordanian royal family? I, I was in Jordan in 2015. I lived there for a couple of years. And from my from my point of view, the royal family is very much loved. Um, I remember going to all the restaurants and you see pictures of the current king, the crown prince. And, and everyone speaks very highly of them. But in the West, there, there is kind of speculation that the monarchy, maybe the king, might be under a bit of pressure domestically. How is... How is the stability of the Jordanian royal family right now in Jordan?
1: Well, um, you know, the the king uh, comes from the um, uh, direct descendancy of the prophet Muhammad, okay? Uh, And the king, uh, like the monarchies, have the awesome responsibility of unifying a country. And in that sense, I think he's done a good job. And, you know, the two the main groupings in Jordan, Jordanians of Palestinian origin and East Bank Jordanians, Uh, the king is a unifying factor. So I think from that sense, um, He's, he and the family is seen in a positive way. Now, when you get into the details of, you know, this Grand Prince, that Grand Prince and so on, people have different opinions. But, you know, we don't have public opinion polls. So we don't really know, uh, they don't run for office. Uh, and so, but generally, you're right, they are popular, they're well accepted. And uh, we saw when this problem happened, a lot of people, you know, issued statements uh, of support, not uh, because they're afraid of their job or their business, but because they genuinely do feel support for for the royal family.
0: Can you kind of give us a bit of a background of who Prince Hamza is and, and where he fits in the royal family and, and where his support lies in Jordan?
1: Well, Prince Hamza is the son of Queen Noor. Queen Noor is an American Arab uh, engineer who uh, came to uh, remodeled the palace after uh, Queen Alia died in a helicopter accident. And the king was very uh, depressed and so on, and she kind of uplifted him and they got married. And so he's the, uh, he's the son of Queen Noor, the American. Um, and he seemed to be a favorite of, of King Hussein, especially in the last days, because he was with him all the time. And um, when he uh, changed the crown prince from Prince Hassan, his brother, to uh, Prince Abdullah, Uh, he requested of of the prince to make sure that when he takes over to appoint uh, Prince Hamza, and he did, and he was there for five years. You know, The king's son was still young at the time. So uh, after five years, the um, crown princeship was removed uh, from him, and uh, a few years later, it was given to his son. Um, Prince Hamza uh, has... um, the looks of king hussein and then unlike king abdullah who doesn't really looks uh, very much like his british mother um but the king, uh, Prince Hamza looks very much like King Hussein, and sounds very much like King Hussein. His his, his voice, if you close your eyes, you would think it was King Hussein speaking. Uh, his demeanor is also uh, quite uh, similar to that uh, of, of of King Hussein. Um, but I don't think he has any special following among certain tribes or so on. You know, they all the princes, you know, they they go around everywhere, they meet with everybody. So, uh, but they have, um, you know, they run different NGOs, they run different charities, they run a a very popular school here, a private school called the uh, Jubilee School. They run the King Hussein Foundation, the Queen Hussein Foundation. Uh, So they have a lot of uh, humanitarian work uh, and and he's the the kind of chair or the uh, honorary chair of these organizations.
0: Were you surprised that Prince Hamza had sent a video panel the BBC he kind of wanted this to become more public than them, maybe what, what it could have been or should have been. Were you surprised about that kind of approach and and he also said about how how there 's been kind of corruption over kind of fifteen twenty years alluding to kind of prince um, king abdullah 's rule were you surprised about that kind of that approach he took
1: um, i am I was surprised because this is not the kind of language that uh, that they normally talk uh, and Uh, You could tell uh, that he was very angry and he's trying to, you know, defend himself and uh, defend that uh, he was being unjustly treated and so on. Uh, So it was a desperation video. uh, So I think one should, you know, put it in that context. It was done and sent by satellite Internet because his Internet was broken, was stopped uh, and he felt isolated. So, you know, he had to defend himself. I do think it's quite easy for anybody in anywhere in any country in the world to be in opposition. It's much harder to govern than to be in opposition. you know it's, you could find any mistake and you can blame it on the gover- people who govern. but when you're in the hot seat of running a country or governing country, you'll find things are not as easy as they are when you're in opposition. so I think you know um he seems to have adapted quickly uh, the the complaints of tribes who have a high unemployment rate among their young people and the covid added to it so people are quite angry and you know normally when you're hungry and angry you let blame whoever is in power and so um i think his adaptation or adaption of these angry remarks uh without uh putting them in the context i think that probably was not very smart uh, but made him popular at the same time so It's quite, and, you know, a prince in Jordan, I'm sure also in the UK, you cannot be a prince and in opposition at the same time, you know. If you want to be in opposition, you have to kind of shed off your princehood. Uh, So, um, and I think that's what happened when they tried to reconcile. He quickly, you know, um, went back into the fold and uh, expressed support to uh, the king and to the crown prince. And I think
0: that kind of ended that sad two-day chapter of the crisis. Yeah, absolutely. You you mentioned there kind of, obviously, the context in in which all this is happening. is surrounded by a lot lot of enemies and foes, as well as allies, Um, and obviously COVID's happened. Perhaps you can kind of give a kind of some of the key problems that that the the country is facing, perhaps kind of domestically and, and internationally.
1: Sure. Uh, Jordan is a country with poor uh, natural resources uh, and a country that uh, was inundated with Palestinian refugees in '48, Lebanese refugees in the Civil War in the 70s, uh, Iraqi refugees after the first Gulf War, Syrian refugees after the Arab Spring. Um, so uh, it had to bear a lot of uh, human... Um, uh, you know the people that are coming into the country uh, or the country with one of the fourth poorest country in water and so on um so uh, yeah it it is dealing with a lot of these things, but it's governed in a in a very um moderate way, Uh, Jordan politically doesn't take sides with most conflicts and tries to keep its uh, bridges open with everybody, including Israel, including Iran, including Iraq, including Egypt. They don't like to um, be in any one side because, basically, I always say their strength is in their weakness. Because they are weak, they are, you know, they are not... uh, able and are not willing to take sides and their stability of the country made it a haven for people and families you know couples and families who work in saudi arabia or palestine or israel or in uh, iraq or syria they set up their families here there's good schools and good hospitals and good medical service and and relatively open cultural society, and then they go and work and then come back home for the weekends or whatever. So it has attracted a lot of people in this kind of um, unusual situation. But as a result, you find that there is a gap now, a much bigger gap between the rich and people who kind of benefit from the rich and the poor, which is the majority and so you go to hotels and restaurants and full of people uh, people pay for a dinner what most people make in weeks and so that has also fermented the anger and the frustration and people are quite unhappy with with the way they are and they see you know across the street or you know in local shops in local malls lots of people and brand names uh, you know filling the malls and yet they walk in the malls because it's nice and warm or cool but they cannot buy, they just, you know, window shop. And that's frustrating.
0: Hmm. Well, but, um, in, Internationally, um, obviously last year the Abraham Accords was one of the big events in, in the region. And there were reports that, that King Abdullah was a bit upset that he might have been blindsided by his kind of golf allies uh, in terms of how, how that went down. Um, how, does, kind of, how is Jordan kind of trying to find itself within kind of this new kind of region with Abraham Accords?
1: Well, Jordan um, under King Hussein and under King Abdullah had good relations with Israel uh, as a country. Uh, king Abdullah has not had good relations with uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu, and that really developed uh, as a result of lack of trust and uh, basically the Netanyahu lied to the king a few times and that broke the trust. And you know, when you have relations, it has to be built on trust, especially when it comes to uh, issues to do with Al-Aqsa Mosque and things like that. But also in terms of uh, the killing of two Jordanians by Israeli guard, which Netanyahu welcomed and you know, kind of patted on the back and, and gave him a hero's welcome. That didn't go very good in Jordanian eyes. And, and, um, so there's been a number of incidents that really poisoned the air and Netanyahu has really never attempted to to pay any attention to Jordan, kind of considered it as a, you know, a small country that is not important and didn't really pay attention to uh, the the issues that the king and the Jordanians were saying. So that, I think, is the problem. But still, despite that, after the last elections, uh, Jordanians met with the... Um, Benny Gantz, the defense minister, and and uh, the Ashkenazi, the foreign minister, and so they have had good relations with Israelis, even though they have not had good relations with Netanyahu. How did that affect the normalization issue? Uh, I think the the normalization, the pact, of what you know, Netanyahu and Trump and MBZ called the Abraham cords, um, did not go well because uh, the uh, Jordan felt that uh, these countries uh, did not ask for his advice, even though Jordan has had the longest uh, and oldest agreement with Israel other than Egypt. And um, they felt he felt that it was done on the account of the Palestinian cause, not in favor of it. Uh, if you remember at the time, there was talk about the annexation of the Jordan Valley, which Jordan really supported, uh, opposed very, very vehemently. And they seem to have succeeded in stopping it. And then, you know, like two months later, the uh, Emirates said, you know, we stopped that. And so it was like, uh, you know, taking credit for, for uh, the hard work that the king had done. Um, so that has poisoned there. air. Of course, you know, there is a, a another personal problem in, in the Emirates in that the um, king's half-sister um, is married to the ruler of Dubai, and then she's divorced or she ran away. And, that has also, again, poisoned the air between Jordan and Emirates, even though you know, there's hundreds of thousands of Jordanians working in the Emirates and Jordan cannot you know, anger the country because they would you know, be out of work and they have to come back and not send money home. And so um, Jordan and Emirates have had a kind of a love-hate relationship in recent years
0: There's a way that jordan will find a way to kind of get itself involved in the abraham accords and kind of benefit from from this relationship did you think jordan it will be open to kind of maybe more economic or or kind of diplomatic ties or
1: yeah well two things first of all jordan because they have a peace treaty with israel cannot really criticize the, the normalization agreement because they already have normal relationship but at the same time the um, benefits of a peace treaty uh, have been overblown, and Jordan has been experiencing the fact that all these expectations that now they're talking about in the Emirates—they also had that when Jordan signed their agreement in the nineteen ninety-four, and everybody was expecting the you know the the results of the peace treaty, and it really fizzled out and uh, has not really brought fruit. And so uh, they're quite uh, skeptical of this claim that, you know, the peace. And they try to quietly say that because, as I said, they cannot um, talk about the norm- oppose the normalization when they already have a peace treaty with Israel. Uh, but they do feel that it broke the Arab peace plan, which was done after. Jordan made its peace treaty of 2002, and all the Arabs signed to it unanimously that they will not normalize relations until Israel withdraws from Arab territories and find an equitable, just solution that is agreed to, i.e. Israel will have to agree to it on the refugee issue. The Emirates broke that uh, consensus uh, by all the Arab countries, and I think that hurt the Palestinian cause, which, could hurt the Jordanian stability and so on if it doesn't get
0: resolved. Whilst I have it, it'd be great just to kind of get your sense on, on the Palestinian elections. Obviously, they're scheduled to be happening this summer. There were reports that kind of the Jordanians weren't overly in- enthused with, with the ideas of Palestinians in, in the West Bank. Um, is that your sense as well? You know, it hasn't played very big in Jordan uh, the elections
1: because of the COVID and all the problems of curfews and lockdowns and the high level of of uh, of cases. Um, but uh, yeah, I think Jordan would be happy to have uh, elections. But the government of Jordan, the intelligence service of Jordan and Egypt uh, want to make a visit to Mahmoud Abbas early on. And they're quite worried about uh, a replay of what happened in 2006 when Hamas won overwhelmingly. Um, and they were reassured that it will not happen again, uh, for many reasons. Among them, that the law of elections has changed, and that there will be uh, there will no longer be the possibility of any one party having. Uh, you know, winner-take-all type of elections. There have to be a coalition government. And in fact, the Palestinians are talking about the need for a coalition government to end the division with Gaza and Hamas. And that's also, you know, it's a big question mark because uh, the Quartet and some of the Israelis and pro-Israeli forces uh, are um, insisting on the Quartet principles which state that no government should... um, Nobody in in any government should uh, be there unless they recognize Israel and, you know, renounce terrorism and and agree to the Oslo Accords and so on. And, you know, to be honest with you, I would like to talk about that because I think it's a mistake to insist on uh, preconditioning who, who should run any country in the world. The, the moment that you make that precondition, you weaken your own um, claim that democracy and the importance of democracy. Secondly, I hope that pro-Israeli forces understand that uh, a national unity government, including Hamas, is actually something important for everybody, including Israel, and for ending the the, uh, the division. And so uh, instead of insisting on it, I think they should take a a hands-off approach and allow uh, the PLO to bring in Hamas and to kind of bring them down from there. And they have moderated a lot since that day. Uh, rather than um, insist on on these um, conditions, which uh, for the time being, uh, you know, even people like Salam Fayyad are saying it's a mistake to insist on this because. Uh, if we really wanted peace and the end of Hamas's rule in Gaza and so on, you should insist on the opposite—that you know that there should be a unified government. And In fact, there should be Hamas, and there should be the top people of Hamas in the government, so that we can reassure the reunification of the laws and the end of the uh, uh, the isolation and the the splinter of Gaza. So it's an argument I understand, uh, but. But I think that uh, if your listeners are interested in this issue, I think they should uh, rethink the idea of, of the um, quartet principles in as far as Hamas. And I think they should um, be open to understanding that a national unity, Palestinian government is actually good for everybody.
0: Okay. Um, how would Jordan feel about Hamas and the West Bank? Would they be open to idea? Is there a relationship, a Jordanian-Hamas relationship?
1: Well, uh, you know, Khaled Mashal, uh, the former head of Hamas, uh, was almost assassinated by Netanyahu's people and, and so on. But since then, uh, the Hamas leaders have been deported. Jordan has deported its own citizens, which is very unusual and questionably constitutionally, because they have been uh, seen as supporting Hamas in Jordan. Uh, and basically, they left the the, the the door open for Egypt to be the... the um, intermediary with Hamas uh, I personally think it's a mistake uh, but Jordan has really had very little relations with uh, Hamas even though Hamas has is often issued and put out the olive branch trying to kind of improve its relations but Jordan has not had really any serious engagement with Hamas.
0: Okay and finally though just um just to kind of put you on the spot a bit do you think we're kind of past the point of no return now with elections do you think Abbas has kind of gone to a stage where he can't go back with elections, he has to go forward? Or do you think, you know, he'll, he might find a way to kind of to back down if he feels that he, he's, his position is under threat?
1: I hope we've gone past the point of no return. Certainly uh, 36 parties who put $20,000 each hope that there will be elections and uh, they put their money because they believe that there will be elections. I don't see how uh, Mahmoud Abbas can cancel the elections without paying a very, very, very big price politically. Uh, so. um I think the bigger problem is not the uh, legislative elections. I think Abbas's uh, bigger problem is the presidential elections, especially if Marwan Barghouti decides to to run, and especially if Fateh uh, decides to uh, not support Marwan Barghouti. Um, I've written that maybe the. They should in, introduce a, a vice presidential system so that uh, even if Marwan runs, uh, somebody else could be a vice president or vice versa, or Abu Mazen would be the president and Marwan would be a vice president. Um, so that needs to be dealt with. Um, but every time you talk to anybody, they say, we're not going to talk about the presidential election until the May 22 legislative election. And then we'll worry about the July 31st uh, presidential elections. My my expectation is that most likely it will be postponed, not cancelled but postponed.
0: Okay, David, that was really interesting. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. Good luck. Bye-bye.